This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Beijing in China. segment of Peter Greenberg Worldwide is proudly brought to you by Sony. Visit PeterGreenberg.com for travel photos with Sony. Now back to Peter Greenberg. 18 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from Beijing, China, as opposed to Beijing, New Jersey, and taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. If you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to Peter at PeterGreenberg.com 
with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right on the air, and we'll do that throughout the show. My next guest knows a little bit about China. In fact, she's wanted to come here for a long time. And in fact, she finally did it uh, about seven years ago. She's now the China correspondent for The Guardian. Tanya Brannigan, how are you? I'm good. Good morning. Uh, why did you always want to come to China? Because it's a fascinating place. It's got an incredible culture, uh, a long, long, long history, millennia uh, of civilization here. And it's a place that's changing so fast. So there's a huge amount to dig into in terms of its culture, but also living here every day. You just see the place transforming uh, in front of your eyes, pretty much. I, I went away one weekend and when I came back, the wasteland opposite my flat had been transformed into a park with fully mature trees. So that gives you some idea of how quickly things go and come and go here. I mean, a far cry from the speed in Manchester. Absolutely, yes. Right? And nothing to say bad about Manchester, but the speed here is pretty incredible. It's just astonishing to watch. Um, the way that Beijing has changed even in the seven years I've been here has been really quite incredible. So. Okay, so we know that it changes at a rapid speed. Tell me the changes that you've liked and tell me the changes that are troubling. Well, I think in some ways it's much easier to get around. The subway system has expanded at an incredible rate. Um, I mean, it's in even by 2020, it's already the same size as the London Underground. Now, that took about sort of 150 years to get to its scale. You know, here it's happened in a few decades and it's going to double in size by 2020. So that just gives you an idea of how quickly things develop. Um, so it's much easier to get around um, and people have grown more cosmopolitan. Um, I mean, it, in a way, you could say it's blander because it has become that bit more westernized. Um, so I guess for people who are coming in, it's maybe more accessible. It's going to be easier for them to get around if they're traveling, if they haven't been to China before. Um, I think for, the downs... In terms of their comfort level. In terms of their comfort levels, in terms of um, the ease, the number of signs that are in English and so forth, uh, how easy it is to get a good cup of coffee, all those sorts and of things. Not once did you mention the name Starbucks. It is everywhere, I'm afraid. But the good news is that actually there are some really nice sort of independent coffee shops that have sprung up around the city, uh, run by Chinese people as well, who have a love of good coffee and are, are trying to share it. So. And your favourite coffee shop? There's a lovely little place called Barista, which is up near the Lama Temple, and that does fabulous coffee. It's a little bit out of my way, so I don't go that often, but I always enjoy it when I do. Okay, so there's one. We're going way beyond the traditional Chinese food approach of Peking duck. I think we can get around that, even though there are some great Peking duck places. Where do you go that's not in the guidebook, that's not in the brochure that you like to hang out in terms of food? Well, one of the things I, I love about Beijing is actually the, the traditional food and not, as you say, you know, people think about Peking duck. Um, I like sort of street food. I like simple food. I love in wintertime you have the sort of fantastic sort of dumplings and so forth. Um, but also some of the snack foods you see around. I mean, you may have smelt on the street. You get these incredible roast sweet potatoes um, and that aroma is just so enticing. Uh, when you walk past. I mean, other sort of traditional Beijing foods, you get things like nailao, which is this fantastic milk dessert. Um, it's like winter, a pudding, isn't it? So it's a sort of a milk pudding, al almost like a custard, but without the eggs. Um, absolutely delicious. I hope somebody's going to export that to the rest of the world. Uh, in this, just as coffee's spreading over China, I'd love to see sort of nailao spreading over the West. Um, and, and of course, there was for a while, there was like creeping McDonald's and creeping Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and creeping Starbucks. So that's inevitable, I suppose. Well, I mean, actually, one of the interesting things is that KFC has done very well here because it's adapted to the local market. So um, what can you get at KFC here that you can't get anywhere else? Uh, all sorts of things. You can go in and get your morning congee. Uh, so when I'm traveling, 
travelling. Uh, which, going... of course, the Colonel's known for. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> One of his favourite things. So um, when I'm tra travelling sometimes, you often get them at airports. And uh, if you go in in the mornings, you can I get a really good rice porridge to start the day. Um, you can get their egg tarts. They're surprisingly good, actually. Really? And, and I can recommend them. If you haven't had one yet, you should go and try. I can't believe you're sitting here recommending Kentucky Fried Chicken egg tarts. I'm, I know. Who would have thought? I, I, apparently not. Oh, I love that. One of the biggest surprises, because, you know, one of the things that happens when, and I, I, know, I know you know this because you've experienced it, living here as an expat, is the minute you get here, all your friends from Manchester decide to come visit. I mean, right? You, you have house guests you didn't even know existed. So what's the biggest surprise for them when they show up? Well, I think actually, it, for me, the problem has been enticing people out because they have this image of Beijing as being rather dour, grey, smoggy. And let's be frank, it can be all of those things. You know, you definitely have bad days here where you really don't want to leave the house. But what's amazing to me is you get people out and suddenly they see the place and they think, actually, this is fabulous. You know, why did I have such a negative image? Because for all the bad days, there are, you know, dozens of good days when the sun's shining, you get this beautiful view, you can go and wander around the old alleyways, you can go and see uh, the Forbidden City and the Summer Palace and, you know, just soak up some of this incredibly old culture. And it's so friendly. You know, people here are really warm, they're willing to talk. Even if you have a tiny bit of Chinese, they will be so pleased you're trying. You, you think about it in contrast to going to sort of Paris where you can sense people sort of slightly looking down their noses when you uh, stumble well, over I your French. When I first came here, there was almost this insatiable curiosity about Westerners because they'd been cut off, you know, during, during the Mao years. And, and I remember walking down the street, uh, I, this happened to me in Shanghai and it happened to me in Beijing, in Beijing, walking down the street and realize that somebody was following you and you said, oh my God, what's this? He turned around, they just wanted to talk to you. They wanted to engage you in a conversation and sing songs. And you know what they were singing to me? Old MacDonald had a farm. She'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. That's how they learned their English. And it was like unbelievable. And, and, that, and that is the lovely thing that, you know, even now people, perhaps, you know, foreigners don't have the same novelty value, but even now people are keen to talk they're friendly, they're engaging. And, and that's why, you know, when you do manage to persuade people to come out, they suddenly say, you know, I had no idea I'd enjoy this so much. And then they do come back. That's the good bit. Um, and I think, you know, the variety of the food that you can get here, because there's food from all over China, just the experience of walking around and realising it's not as sort of grey and grim and urban as they were expecting. And let's face it, it gets cold here in the winter. Let's not kid ourselves. And yet when it gets cold here and the water freezes, people go ice skating. And that's one of my favourite things about the city. I mean, I, I think just that chance to sort of go skating on the lakes. I mean, it, I guess it because depends. the lakes freeze. I mean, that's what happens. They freeze over. It's fabulous. If you're feeling lazy or you just don't want to sort of risk your ankles, uh, there are ice bicycles. You can sort of pedal your way across the ice. There are sleds oh, that you sort that. of push along with ski poles. Ice so. bicycles? Ice bicycles. I'm thinking orthopedic surgery, but if you tell me I can do it, I'll do it. So there's all sorts of ways of getting round without sort of risking life and limb. Um, and that's beautiful. That's one of my favourite things. I actually love wintertime. I mean, people, it, it's true, it's very cold. You have to wrap up warm, but there are sort of fewer people out and about. And it's beautifully peaceful. And when you get a nice clear day like this, go off skating. And the thing that you'd like to see better here? I would like to see Beijing better preserve its heritage. 
Now, they have just said that in city planning, they're going to do that. They're going to think about, you know, how to sort of protect the legacy. Unfortunately, it's just come so late because so much of Beijing has been destroyed. Um, and it's really, really sad to see so many beautiful old lanes and buildings being torn down uh, and often replaced by this quite sort of disnified version of fake old buildings where everything's sort of, you know, fiberglass no. stone. I, I, yeah, I mean, that, that's that been the really heartbreaking thing to see. And, and partly, you know, because I come from a place where um, a, a lot of the same mistakes were made already. You know, in the UK, we tore down a lot of fabulous buildings um, to make way for very average sort of modern developments. And of course, we've come to really greatly regret that. And so for me, it's maybe more distressing to see China making exactly the same mistakes because you want to say, no, you know, we did it. Don't don't be so foolish. Don't but go down the get, same get, path. Get to the point of connecting the dots to realize that the travel and tourism is the largest industry in the world. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? now to talk to Peter Greenberg at 1-888-887-3837 or email him at peter at petergreenberg.com. Now back to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. 33 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you in Beijing talking with Tanya Bradley of the the China correspondent for The Guardian. By the way, one of my favorite newspapers, I actually get it in the States every week. They, they send it to me in a, almost like a little rice paper, but I love it. Uh, when we were last talking off, we're talking about the extensive rail network here in China. I mean, I go back to the days of the old Trans-Siberian Express, where you could actually take a train, and you, by the way, you still can, uh, from Beijing. It used to go from Beijing to East Berlin. That's where it went. And it was so cool, because you'd go through places you couldn't believe, you know, Outer Mongolia, Inner Mongolia, I mean, places, you know, that you'd never stopped before. Um, and you can still do it. I mean, how much have you taken the train in China? Well, um, as I said, I mean, one of the things is it's got much easier because yeah. you now have this network of high-speed trains. And by the way, the fastest train in the world is here. I Indeed. Mean, it is. I mean, I think we're talking 300 kilometers an hour. That's all. That's fast. That is fast. I mean, it, the speed with which these things have been sort of rolled out is incredible. So, you know, you, you want to go to Shanghai now. It takes about four and a half hours on the train. It's so much easier than going to the airport, going through security, climbing on a plane. Um, so that's made it life much easier. Having said that, a lot of the train rides that I've enjoyed most have been on the more old-fashioned services. You on, know, the the, steam, on the steamers. Yeah. Uh, not quite on the steamers. There are very, very few of those now, and they don't yeah. run on the sort of the main passenger networks. Um, but on the sort of the little rattle trap things that go from place <laughs> to place, and actually there you sort of end up just having great conversations with people who are along the way. I mean, I think the most memorable ride I have I did has to have been at Chinese New Year, which of course is this incredible migration. You've got so many migrant workers in this country. Chinese New Year's their one time to go home and so the trains are absolutely packed and somehow uh, I managed to make my way onto one of the most crowded ones and was sort of 
penned in with everybody else. So it was an extremely cramped and crowded and chaotic journey, but it was just great because it was people going home to see their families. They were excited. They were taking presents back. It was just a lovely feeling. You know, when you live in a city and you've lived here now, what, how many years now? Seven years. Seven years. When you live in a city, sometimes it's so easy to take things for granted. Ask New Yorkers how many live into the Statue of Liberty. Most of them haven't. You know, ask how many Parisians have been to the Eiffel Tower. What have you not done here? Well, actually, I was just saying to a friend yesterday, I still haven't gone, got round to going to Mao's mausoleum. Um, so I've that done, I've done that. Well, there you are. You're ahead of me. So that that's on the agenda. Although, In fact, we made a date. Story? Can I tell you a story? <laughs> the day I was there, they were in shock. They were embarrassed. They didn't know what to do because his ear fell off. And so it was like, don't look, don't look, don't look. Sure enough, his ear had fallen off. And they had to close the place and get the, you know, get the morticians back in there and the embalmers and put the ear back on. Because for those of you who have not seen him, he's encased in plexiglass. I mean, he's, he's in, in like almost this crystal glass. I mean, he's still there. Same thing with Ho Chi Minh, by the way. If you go to, if you go to North Vietnam, or I, I still call it, see, I'm old enough to still call it North Vietnam. Uh, there they are. He's in there inside the glass. It's, it's pretty amazing. But you haven't done that yet, have you? No, I just, as I said, I just made a date with my friends. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we shall uh, go well, off to inspect him for ourselves. for you. The ear's back on, so you can go. That's a relief to know. At least one of them is. I don't know what the other one is. Mean, if they were smart, they would have done both at the same time. Anything else you haven't done? From, from an iconic point of view. I mean, yeah. uh, well, I was about to say, I still haven't gone to see the Tapwater Museum. The what? The Tapwater Museum. Would you please elaborate? Uh, there is a museum of tap water in Beijing. There are many small, obscure museums. Uh, and the one I've always thought I must go to, purely because the name so intrigued me, is the Museum of Tap Water. Uh, by all accounts, it doesn't take a terribly long time to go round. So I'm not sure your listeners Unless would want to put it a, a, top of their list. But I oh. feel having lived in Beijing this long, I should at least try to see it. Unless it... There you go. Keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3. And you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You gotta pay with plastic. If you have a few Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One of the beautiful things about coming to Beijing is that more and more you have an opportunity to get up close and personal and interact with an expat, someone who actually took the, uh, the plunge before you and immersed themselves in the culture and went from being an outsider to an insider. And my next guest certainly qualifies as that. She's the founder of the Beijing Expat Guide. It's Ruth Valle. Hey, Ruth. Hey, Peter. Pleasure now, to meet you. Now, you came here not because you woke up one morning and said, I can't wait to go to Beijing. You came here because your husband got reassigned here. Um, yes, not necessarily reassigned, but it was our choice to come here. Yes. So, well, okay, yeah. but you didn't wake up one morning and say, I have to go to Beijing. It was, it was given to you as a choice and you came. That's true. But you knew yeah. nothing about Beijing before you got here. Right? Oh, we came here on travels before, actually. What you mentioned uh, over the years, it had changed so much. Yeah. We've been here in 2006 for the first time versus when we came in 2011. It's been a huge difference. Well, between already. 2000, you had the Olympics between then, so the Wait. huge building and the airport and everything else. Yeah, and about 
five, six, seven more subway lines and tens of more subway stops and new freeways and everything. Is the subway here traveler friendly? It is traveler friendly in terms of language and uh, ease of use. It can be extremely crowded during rush hour. Well, welcome, welcome to Japan, the same thing. I mean, right? They, people are yeah. pushing you in all the time. <laughs> yeah, same here. What was the first lesson that you learned when you think about once you moved here that you weren't expecting? I think one of the things I learned very quickly is to be very patient and to learn some basic Chinese as soon as possible. Like help? <laughs> um, yeah, like taxi Chinese, getting directions, getting simple things, learning especially food Chinese. We started out living a little bit on the outskirts of China, uh, of Beijing before moving closer to the center. So there not much English was spoken. It wasn't... Now when you say food Chinese, give me an example. Being able to know the things on, on the menu, asking for some favorite dishes, even if you cannot read the menu because you can't read characters, um, knowing what different things are, uh, like the noodles that May explained earlier. So to be able to order those things in a restaurant where no one speaks English and the menu is written in Chinese characters. I got you. And then, of course, you have to figure out your way around because this is a city that keeps expanding. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That is true. It's... Just the sheer size of Beijing, getting from A to B can take forever. In a subway, it's often an hour, an hour and a half to go from the outskirts to more of the city center. In, in car, it can be much faster. But in rush hour, it can be also much, much slower. And then you're just completely stuck. So, so you've learned to bring books. What was that? You've learned to bring some books along. Yeah, like everyone is on the subway on their smartphone, often actually watching um, U.S. TV series uh, with ch uh, Chinese subtitles. That's the a very favorite Okay, time. and the most popular U.S. TV series? Which one is it? Friends was very popular for a long time. Right. The Big Bang Theory was really popular as well. Really? Yeah. Wow. The Big Bang Theory. Well, very happy about that because that's a <laughs> CBS show. I'm on CBS, so mm -hmm. very good. I, I love it. Big Bang Theory in China. Yes. I love that. Safety is not really a bad, uh, not really an issue here because it's a very safe place to be. It depends, and that's actually an answer you will get from many things he was in Beijing. If you look at road safety, it's not necessarily a very safe place. No, that part again. You have to be very careful, everyone. But if you're talking about like going out, walking somewhere in, in the crime, evening, yeah, yeah. in terms of of a violent crime, it's a very safe place. Yeah, you mentioned road safety. I think the toughest job here in, in Beijing would have to be insurance claims adjuster because everybody's it's bumper cars out there it is bumper cars out there and those little tricycles and bikes and motorcycle uh, or electrical bikes and scooters and pedestrians unlike india at least not cows but it's pretty crowded <laughs> i think we should throw some cows in there too it would make it much more interesting yeah. uh when i first came here you know you could count the number of cars on the fingers of two hands in, in the middle of downtown Beijing, there would be a couple of black government cars and that was it. Everybody else was on bicycle, moving very slowly. Now everybody's moving fast when they can move fast and the cars mm -hmm. are everywhere. What about the infrastructure itself? About There's so many new restaurants opening up, uh, museums, art galleries. Um, I mean, as an expat here, right, as you've written the guide, I mean, what do you tell everybody? What, what are your choices? Places that they shouldn't miss. I'm not talking about the Forbidden City or the Great Wall. <laughs> I'm talking about things that you know that might not be on everybody's radar. I think one of the things you shouldn't miss is actually seeing the normal Beijing life, getting lost on purpose, wandering the little streets, especially in the off hours, maybe earlier in the morning or later in the evening, and just see how life happens here, how things are different. 
how much is going on on the streets, especially in summertime when many of the buildings are not ventilated that, that well. So that's, I think, what makes it an interesting experience. Because if they're not ventilated, that well means everybody's on the street at night. Yes. Right? Nobody wants to be inside. Right. And also very good is getting up early in the morning, go to one of those local parks because there's a lot of activity, people practicing Tai Chi, but also more modern style aerobic with dance uh, and, and music and everything. So it's a pretty interesting place. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go My next guest, an old buddy of mine. I cannot show up in Beijing without talking to her because I'd be a fool if I didn't. She is all things China, especially all things Beijing. She runs a company called Wild China here, but I don't go anywhere without talking to Mei Zhang. Hi, Mei. Hi, did, Peter. Did you like that introduction? I love it. I love it. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. I, I, normally, I see you all around the world, but I don't see you all the time here. But now I do see you here, which is great. It's fantastic. I mean, I've been coming to Beijing since 1971, I came over with Nixon. Uh, when, when, yes, I know. I'm, I'm an old guy. That's when I was born. <laughs> all right. The interview's now over. We'll move on. Uh, but really, I've been coming over all those years. And what's amazing to me is that every place can always tell you they're changing. And they do. But they don't change as rapidly. They don't change as crazily as, yeah. as, yeah. as, as China and especially Beijing. I mean, yeah. when I first came here... I mean, it's not a surprise to you, but it's, when I first came here, you know, I, I could count the number of cars I saw on the street with two hands, you know, the fingers of two hands. Wow. I mean, you, you had an occasional black government car, you know, with the flags on it. Yeah. Uh, you, what you did see was bicycles and bicycles and bicycles. And, and in fact, when you went to a hotel, they would loan you a bicycle and you would just, that's how you got around. Yeah. Um, and you learned, and what was interesting about the bicycles then was that nobody rode their bicycles fast. Everybody rode their bicycles slowly, and they almost did it like they were synchronized swimmers, you know? I mean, everybody... Now, the other reason why they were riding their bicycles slowly is because the speed of the bicycles was set by the slowest rider, and the slowest rider was carrying five kids, five baskets, coal, I mean, it's a, it, right? The balancing act was amazing. Now, uh, I was just telling a story earlier that... Um, a couple of years ago, I came here when they opened up a hotel called The Opposite House, a place you and I know yep, very well. Yep. And they said, oh, we're going to send a car for you to the airport. I said, okay, great. And they sent a car. It was a Maserati. And <laughs> But wait, it gets worse. So I get in the car, right? Uh -huh. And I'm sitting in the Maserati. Yeah. And as I'm coming back into town thinking, boy, am I special? We got passed by five other Maseratis. <laughs> so, I mean, times have changed, haven't they? Definitely has. It's it's gone crazier. It's wilder. Okay, well, yeah. listen. The name of your company is Wild China. What is particularly wild about Beijing these days? I think it's very much like the way you were describing it. The, it well, first of all, I call my business Wild China. It's because of the complexity of this country. You come to the city, as you were describing, yes, there were, there were the Maseratis parked in front of the shopping mall, right, in Sanitou, oh, yeah. in the bar area, oh, yeah. right? But then at the same time, there are... All these workers coming from the countryside, working in construction site day and night, in some of them in pretty miserable conditions. So it's a, it, it's not as extreme as what you would imagine, like in 
Brazil uh, or in India, that kind of thing. But Beijing has this sort of wide span of wealth, but at the same time, it has this wide span of culture. Now Beijing, before it is, this is the capital, this is the political center, but actually over the past 20 years, all the provinces, people from the provinces have come here. You look at culture. Uh, the art scene well, well, no, booming with every... And in terms of food, as the provinces food. come here, you're getting those provincial food. Look, Not just provincial food, but the global. Oh, sure. But yeah. let's start with provincial for a second, because yeah. you're from Yunnan. Yes. Okay? Yes. And you're from the South. I have, Yunnan has the best food. <laughs> like, I'm not biased. I'm yeah, totally oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know what? I agree with you, by the way. It, all the foodies go to Yunnan, and they say, wow, where has this province been hiding? Seriously, we're actually running a trip next year with Fuchsia Dunlop. It's always sold out. Fuchsia Dunlop is this very well-known cookbook writer. She's British, based in London, but she spent a whole year chopping, dicing, and learning from the chefs in Sichuan. And so she's always said, Sichuan food is one of the main cuisines of food. But Yunnan, a province south of it, not known for food. You go there, the fresh mushrooms in the summer make the truffles of Europe seem like simple. Truffles, you get slices. In Yunnan, you get a stir-fried dish of it. Wow. Uh, it's, it, seriously, the food there is amazing. Fresh, from the mountains. Um, you know, People there don't buy on a weekly basis. They buy every day twice, shopping. Very fresh ingredients. Well, you know, and we talk about food. When I first came here, I'm not making this up. Yeah. The only place you go to, there, there was a hotel here that was opened up, actually in, a little bit later than when Nixon was here. It was opened up in like 84, uh, and it was called the Great Wall. It was a Sheridan. It was oh. a Sheridan Great Wall, and it, and it had this like revolving restaurant. Everybody had to have a revolving restaurant, right? Once they had their revolving restaurant, everybody had to have a revolving restaurant. Yeah. But you didn't eat there. You you said, oh, you got to go out to eat. Well, where do you go? In 1984, you know where you went out to eat? At one of about seven different duck restaurants, and, and, and they were all terrible. They were all <laughs> terrible. And the one that was the, 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 the least of them all, the least terrible of them all, we used to call it the sick duck. You know why? Because it was the one closest to the hospital. And those, and that was, I had better Peking duck in New York than I had in Peking. Now, I have better food here than I can have in many other cities around the world because it's all come to, come to the force. Yeah. Right? Yeah, people here eat out all the time. I know. So the, the restaurant scene is amazing. It's funny you talk about the revolving restaurant because last year I actually went to North Korea. And went went to stay at their only uh, five star hotel. Well, they have the five stars relative. Yes. Come on. Yeah, okay. But it's like the five star in the nineteen eighties in, in As China. As I said, it's relative. Right. <laughs> but they have what? They have a revolving restaurant on the top. Because they were <laughs> they were copying the Chinese. That's what they were doing. They thought that was a cool thing to do. And then when you go there, you, you find all the people riding bicycles, and it, it reminds me of really China, the, sure. of those years, sure. the very early years. That well, because you had. the very early mm -hmm. years here. They didn't have the infrastructure. Now they yeah. have it here. Yeah. North Korea has one hotel but no infrastructure. They don't have mm. it yet. Yeah. They don't have it yet. They put you in that hotel because that's the only hotel they can put you in in terms yeah. of, of, of being somewhat considered from the West, even though you're based here in Beijing, as yeah. a foreign visitor. That's where they put you. Yeah. I know. Yeah. How was the food in North Korea? It was actually quite good. But I think they probably saved up all a lot of people's food just for the visitors because we had plenty. But in the streets, I'm, I didn't see any fat person, you yeah, know, yeah. anyone, <laughs> like not a single one. They said the entire one country has one, which is the leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And he suffers from gout. So that means he's eating too much cheese. Oh, no. Yeah, it's true. 
All right, but let's get back to the food here. You got, I mean, every major hotel that opens up has a great kitchen, has a great restaurant. And mm. then all the local restaurants, I mean, it's one thing to say in Manhattan there are 19,000 restaurants in New York City, right? In Manhattan alone. But it's true. But I, bas- I bet you're pretty close to that right here in Beijing. You have that many restaurants. Never did the counting, but yeah. there are plenty. Yeah. I, w- I would bet probably more if probably. you count the noodle joints in the street corners. The noodle, of course, the noodle joints, yeah. Yeah. So where do you, okay, give me an idea of a great noodle joint that you go to that's not in the brochure, that's not in the guidebook, but you would love to take me to. Ah. See, the great thing about Beijing is you can eat high and low. You can go to these really, really posh five-star res- um, hotels, like the Rosewood would have a noodle place and serving Beijing noodles. It's great. And also in the street corner, one province that's famous for noodles is Shanxi. And particularly, they have these hand-rolled dough, and you would slice them. And the slices would fly off into the, into the boiling pot of hot water. And Shanxi noodles is famous. And that's usually you'll find in all the street corners. They're very affordable, probably equivalent of $2, $3. That's it? That's it. Not a meal. Bad. Yeah, that's my son's favorite. <laughs> and mom's favorite, too, because it's not expensive. Well, I don't know. I can't take all that starch. <laughs> People here, yes, the, the Beijing population has moved on to be much more health conscious. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. This segment of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Greater Fort Lauderdale. Visit sunny.org for more information and say hello to Sunny. Every time I come to China, I always want to talk to a local. Not necessarily a local Chinese, but they're always very helpful, of course. But someone who's actually made the, the, the conscious decision to move here, immerse themselves in the culture, and survive. Not necessarily succeed, but survive. And somebody who's done both, survive and succeed, is my next guest. Uh, freelance journalist, British expat. Did I get that right? Yep, I did. Yep. Sarah Kingleyside, how are you, Sarah? I'm fine, thank now, you. Now, you first came here to start Time Out. Yes, correct. The, the magazine, yeah. which has like, I think, 150,000 editions now around the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they have like Time Out in North Korea. They just haven't told us to publish it yet. Yeah, probably. Exactly. And, and, and you write for everybody else. But you came here in 2005 and... I remember 2005, you didn't see a lot of cars, saw a lot of bicycles, you saw a lot of coal, uh, you saw a lot of people carrying things on bicycles you couldn't balance yourself in a million years, and it was three years before the Olympics, so the decision had been made, obviously, to start building for that by then, and they had. Talk about rampant change. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, the city was just a, a giant building site, and the pollution, I think, was probably at its worst then, despite what people think now. I think it was worse before. Yes, I mean, I mean, you know... You take a look around, and there's always, at some point, whether it's summer, winter, it doesn't matter the, the season, right? There's always some sort of a haze in, yeah. in, in Beijing. Now, some of it could be sandstorms. Some of it can't be, right? Um, and you've seen some of the worst of it. Yeah. But you still stay here because there are, there are redeeming qualities to this city. Yes, exactly. Such yeah. as? 
Many, many redeeming qualities. Um, I think, uh, first of all, it's just a really dynamic place to live. So it's really exciting and it's always moving and it seems to change so often. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, you know, I'm from just outside London and whenever I go back to London, I love it, but I realise that it doesn't change that much. Beijing, you can go away for a two week holiday and come back and, you know, there's five different new shops on your street, a new restaurant, you know, everything's changed. Buildings have been knocked down. It moves very quickly. It does. And... They're trying to do something about the pollution now because they don't have a choice. Yeah, um, and because the local population has woken up to what it really is. When I first came to Beijing, people thought that we were crazy. They used to get annoyed with the foreigners talking about pollution. They just thought it was fog. So now that the local population <laughs> realize it's not fog, there's pressure on. But they've also been able to connect the economic dots here and realize that they does, there's a cause and effect here. There are consequences. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I remember when I first came here, Now I came here before you did, I came in the late actually the early 70s, uh, and, and maybe there were three bicycles. I mean, it was crazy. But when I came here, in the winter months, if you wore a white shirt, it could be gray by lunchtime simply because there was so much coal dust, right? Things are getting better. Oh, yeah, definitely. Exactly. We're not at that level anymore. But um, I think um, certainly from my friend's point of view, it's people with children that worry the most. So I think on a day-to-day level, as you say, it's not so bad. It's it's very tolerable it's just it doesn't look very nice um but what does look nice here you've got a, a an exploding art scene you've got a, an exploding food scene i mean talk about a restaurant opens up every five minutes here yeah i mean so i have to ask you now as the insider now not the outsider yeah. where do you like to hang out where do you like to go that not necessarily in the brochure not necessarily in the guidebook that for someone listening to this show coming to beijing you say you have to go here yeah my personal favorite is actually the area i live which is the gulo area around the drum and the bell tower so it's it can be touristy but actually if you go off the beaten track and you actually spend time there rather than just going to the the touristy spots it's just um there's so many layers to it and well, you can people really are going to go to the forbidden city they're going to go to the Tiananmen <laughs> square they're going to go to the great yeah. wall okay okay i got that yeah, yeah but going beyond that even in your neighborhood Give me a specific place that where you like to eat. Um, there is a noodle bar that I really, really like. It's uh, don't ask me the name of it. It's actually near uh, Beijing Chow, so it's near the um, Lama Temple, actually. And it's a tiny little noodle shop, and it's um, eighteen renminbi for a bowl of noodles, and they're the tastiest noodles you're, you're ever going to eat. And they'll fill you up till dinner time. Okay, well, <laughs> you don't look like somebody who needs a lot to be filled up, so we're, we're, we're angry at you already. Uh, but okay, that's that's till dinner time. Evening? Evening, actually, um, I really love the Yunnan restaurants in Beijing and around that area. So actually, there's a proliferation of Yunnan restaurants. Yunnan, yeah, so Yunnan is the uh, uh, province in the south of China, sort of uh, bordering Vietnam. And uh, it's so there's a kind of southern cuisine. The, the food is lighter. It's a bit spicy. And they do kind of fried goat's cheese and um, uh, mint salad, spicy mint salad. It's just delicious. All of the dishes on a, on a Yunnan menu are pretty amazing. And there are a lot of Yunnan restaurants around Gulo. Now. Forgetting food now, mm. moving to the next category, right? The art scene, galleries, where do you hang? Um, so the 798 Art District, I think is still is still the place to go. There are one or two um, uh, independent uh, galleries around other parts of town. For example, not far from here, we're near the Dongbianmen Watchtower that has a gallery inside it, which is beautiful, but it's, it's quite far to go. 798 is the... Um, kind of former munitions factory, the Chairman Mao era munitions factory that... Um, that has alone a, is worth visiting. <laughs> exactly, yeah, amazing. It has all these Bauhaus buildings that are, have the same uh, status as the Forbidden City in terms of preservation, and it's just full of galleries. Total? 
not in Kansas anymore. My next guest, I mean, I can't keep up with how many editions there are around the world. Uh, I mean, I think the only thing I'm missing now is like Time Out Newark. Uh, I think there probably is a Time Out Newark. Um, he's the actual editor of the Time Out Beijing. Lee Williamson, how are you, man? I'm well, thank you. Good to be here. I mean, is this city exploding or what? This city is out of control exploding. It's incredible. There's nothing else like it in the world. Uh, so be, to be the editor of the local Time Out here is just the most exciting thing. I mean, you may not even have to sleep because you, you, you can't keep up. Well, I may sound a bit groggy because I didn't really sleep that much last night, to be honest, because <laughs> there's just a whole lot going on. Um, yeah, music, theater, everything. Well, let's talk about that, and we'll even get to food later on. But, I mean, there are so many arts districts popping up now, mm -hmm. right? Which never, nobody even thought about that 20 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, Beijing is, you know, Shanghai is the, the financial capital of China, but Beijing is the political capital. And, of course, with that comes the culture. So the artists, the musicians, the writers always have been and still are based in Beijing. Yes, but now they're really getting out. Absolutely. I mean, as part of the general opening up of China uh, since the 80s, uh, with Deng Xiaoping, with the reforms and whatnot, um, more and more Western influences come in, and then people have seen that, and they're doing their own version of it. So art is really exploding. There are these huge districts, like the 798 Art District, and Songzhuang, and Caochangdi, which is where Ai Weiwei has his studio, and there are just dozens and dozens of galleries doing really exciting individual stuff. And not worrying about, about, you know, punching through existing barriers. Absolutely. I mean, you know, censorship exists here. That's just a fact. And, and most people do self-censor. Um, but you'd be surprised at what artists can get away with without well, government intervention. Well, it's one thing to say that they've, you know, they shut down Facebook here and Instagram and, mm. and uh, hey, even my website you can't even find here. Right. But, the, but the, I get that. that. That's a compliment, though, if you've been censored. I guess brilliant. apparently. You should take that as a big compliment if you've been censored in China. Well, I can't find it. Let's put it that right. way. But if you get beyond that, an artist, you're right, Lee, they can get away with a lot of stuff because it's all about how you interpret it. Yes, absolutely. Um, there are very clever ways to do certain to convey certain messages and artists have become very good at knowing where the line is and knowing what they can and can't do um but because these artists aren't still aren't really talking to the people the masses they're not trying to incite revolution and everything so i think they're mostly left alone because it's like an elite art class that are producing it and receiving it interpreting it so right, they so can mention the Cultural Revolution, they can mention the Great Leap Forward, they can talk about censorship and current corruption problems and things, but because they're not speaking to a mass audience, they're allowed to kind of do their thing. Whereas things like Facebook and Instagram, where we're talking mass audiences, that's where the iron fist comes down, typically. Sure. But you know, on a cultural level, I, I remember, uh, this goes back to Shanghai days, I'll go back to 1984. I'm, I, I've been going there since 71, 72, when, when Nixon came in. But in 1984, mm -hmm. I'm in Shanghai, and there's the Peace Hotel, the old Cafe Hotel, yeah. uh, which is now the Fairmont, by the way. Right, yeah. Um, and across the street, they had a little place, which is not there anymore, called the Peace Cafe. And I remember going in there, 
and for lunch. And I walk in, and for, for a good 15 minutes, it doesn't dawn on me what I'm experiencing. I'm walking in, and the maitre d', very stylishly dressed for a cafe, the guy had a perm, right? right. I walk in, and I, order, I look at the menu, I ordered a BLT, yeah. right? And, and I haven't, it still hasn't dawned on me yet. And then there's music playing, and it's like, I need a baker, right? I'm like, right. Oh, really? And I'm like, am I in Shanghai? And then I finish my lunch, right? I go to leave, and the maitre d' says, did you have a nice lunch? I said, yeah. He says, I'll see you later. I said, okay, I'll see you later. He says, no, you're supposed to say, in a while, crocodile. I'm like, going, <laughs> oh, my God, right? So the phrases are out there now. The the nuances are out there now. The slang is out there now. It's it's moving it at warp speed. Uh, yeah, and, and that was in the 80s, right? That was 84. I, I've been at time out. I've been in Beijing for three years, and the changes I've witnessed in three years are phenomenal. What's, Beijing, the, what's the biggest change? You can't really put a finger on one thing just because absolutely everything is unrecognizable, like decade on decade. It really is. Beijing is a completely different city since the Olympics, even. You know, like 10 years ago, you couldn't really get a decent burger in this city. And now I know you were talking to some like US guys that are making this fantastic Mexican food in this city. Um, it really is because the economy is, you know, basically 10% year on year for the past decade. This is burgeoning middle class, and they have a taste for all these new things. So, like in terms of lifestyle and culture, it's it, every single department: music, art, film, food, and drink. It's just bigger and bigger year on year. And from a provider point of view, whether you're a restaurant owner or an automobile manufacturer, or you have to adapt to the cultural demands. I mean, for example, I was floored when I was talking to the guys at Audi, mm -hmm. and they said to me, "You know, we're the biggest selling foreign car in China." I said. Oh, okay, I, I can see that. Okay, fine. They said, no, but there's something else you didn't know. I said, what's that? We had to re-engineer the car just for the Chinese market. I said, any particular car? I said, no, all of our cars, the A3, the A4, the 5, the 6, the 7, the A8, everything except the A8. I said, what did you have to do? They said, we had to extend the wheelbase. Mm -hmm. We had to lengthen the car. I said, for the Chinese market? They need bigger cars? They said, no, you don't understand. It's an ego thing. Yeah. They wanted the, the, the cars extended so they could be driven. They wanted drivers. Yeah. Now, whoever would have conceived of that thought yeah. about China, let alone five years ago, the, the Audi is the uh, government officials' wheels of choice. And, you know, that old Ford quote about any color you want as long as it's in black, that's very much the case with Audis here because the, the government cars are all black Audis and people want to emulate that and they want to show to the world that they have this status and this money and this power. And so you won't see an Audi in any other color apart from black on the streets of Beijing. Uh, and they're the ones you want to get out of the way of because the people driving them or have, being driven in them are pretty powerful. So when I'm tootling around on my bicycle around town, I can you stay away from the Audis. <laughs> That's a great commercial line for Audi. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you're in one, nobody's going to bother you. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's, there's the other one that floors me. The largest selling American car brand in China, you never would have guessed. Ever. It's a Buick. Yeah. How'd that happen? I'm no car expert, but I'm pretty sure Buick have done the thing that a lot of US and Western companies have done, which is they've done joint ventures with Chinese companies. And by doing this, they can circumvent import taxes and, and certain restrictions put on foreign trade and um, things brought over from so the West. So it's a more affordable car. Yes, I think so. I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's the case with Buick, but it's certainly the case with a whole lot of different Western imports. I mean, films, for example. The, the amount of Chinese Western um, co-productions you're seeing is because 
Hollywood studios want a piece of the Chinese market. There's a cap on how many foreign films can be shown in local cinemas. So to get around this it's cap, to get around this cap, they do a co-production. Therefore, it's co-produced with Chinese producers and Chinese money and actors. And therefore, they are not. Um, they don't have to abide by this uh, this like restriction, and that's why you see it. So people are getting around these restrictions. And I'm sure Buick is probably a similar thing. I know because you know you mentioned the name, but it's but Buick is actually considered a status car here. Yeah. In the U.S., if I told somebody I bought a Buick, they go, uh huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, General Motors, but that's what they tell me. Yeah. And I'm sure they make a great car, but it's 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 a it's an eye opener for me. Yeah. Now you you said you've only been here three years. What else has surprised you? Um. It's just a massive question. I'm just trying to rack my brains for a second. Um, just in general, when you come to China, so many people in the West have the impression of it as this like authoritarian state, and it's basically akin to like a North Korea type thing. And then I like and, everybody and you know, else. You know the reason for that, honestly. And yeah. I, I grew up in in the '60s when every picture that came out of China, every picture that came out of Russia, every picture that came out of Cuba mm. was only shown to us, and I'm sure it may have been intentional, in black and white. Yeah. There was no color. Now, color existed, but when we saw pictures of Mao or Zhou Enlai, we saw pictures of, of Castro or, you know, it was always in black and white. To be yeah. fair, Beijing is a very gray city even now, though. I know, but I, I said China, though. <laughs> yeah. China. Yeah. Um, and it was, I remember it was only when, uh, and Dropoff, the Russian uh, uh, president, invited a little girl named Samantha Smith to come visit him on a Black Sea resort. And the first pictures came back of her on, on a beautiful beach that was in color. All my friends went, Russia is in color? You know, I mean, same thing about well, China. I tell you, China and Beijing is in technicolor right now. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? 
Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.